Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Christopher, good to be back with you. We are going to be covering Psalms today. The way to experience Psalms is to listen to it, to read it yourself, to get out of it what you personally can find within it. So we're going to try to give you some things to use as you move in that direction. Yeah, let's start by talking a little bit about what the Psalms are. And that's not uncontroversial. Perhaps, you know, (laughs) yeah, isn't that interesting? Perhaps, you know, listeners are used to the idea that Psalms are hymns, right? They're hymns of praise. And certainly some of the wording makes that pretty obvious when you get praise repeated over and over and over, right? And then we even have Psalms in our hymn book. Yeah. So the, we we ourselves sing these songs of praise. You know, I counted that there were at least 77 of our hymns in our hymn book that reference Psalms. That is, that is quite a few. So one of the things about Psalms that turns out to be controversial is whether it's poetry. Now, I don't think I'm convinced by Robert Alter that it's poetry, but one of the one of the scholars that I've turned to, I read his book, what is it, How to Read the Bible? I think it's How to Read the Bible mm-hmm. by Kugel? James yeah, Kugel, yeah. Before we started podcasting on the Bible, you know, last December, and that was huge for me. And Robert Alter's been another one, another great biblical scholar that I've turned to. And it turns out these two guys are on and opposing camps when it comes to the poetry of the Psalms, but they're not, they're just representative. They're not, maybe I'm not saying they're alone, right? But they're the two, they represent the two sides in this conversation. And so on the one hand in Kugel's camp, there is no poetry in the Bible. There, there's more of a continuum and, you know, sort of from, in terms of the, the language goes from one end of the spectrum to the other, maybe more poetic language, less poetic language, but no formal poetry. Formal is important here, right? Form. Yeah. Yeah. So Robert Alter argues, contra Kugel, why, yes, there is, because there is a form to the, uh, to the, the writing. There, there's a formality to it. There are 
rules. ways that it works. Yeah, there are rules to it, even if the rules don't always apply. Rules are meant to be broken, but there's a structure within which the writers are writing. So in Alter's view, there is poetry in the Bible, and it is apparent because of these rules that are followed because of the formal. And, and there, are other, there are other definitions that we can go with. When, when you have, let's put it this way. This is a quote from Barbara Hermstein Smith, and she's actually quoted in Alter in um, The Art of Biblical Poetry. Let me footnote this. So The Art of Biblical Poetry is written to explain Alter's idea or his argument, right? To make his case that there is poetry. And so it really covers all of what biblical prosody is, how biblical poetry works, and even goes into each form, because there are different kinds of poetry, each form of poetry, what you see in Job, what you see in Psalms, what you see in the Song of Songs, and even in the prophets, right? We know that Isaiah, I think some, some of listeners may know that Isaiah is some of it's written in verse and some of it's not, right? So it's got both. Sometimes it's hard to tell in the Hebrew where the poetry begins and ends in those when it blends from prose to poetry, right? And also in the Psalms, they are not in the traditional Hebrew text. They're not actually, there are no line breaks for the, for the lines. So sometimes it's hard for, for scholars to tell, you know, where the, where mm. the verses or verse sets are. They're, they're verse sets because they're pairs or sometimes three versets. We can tell sometimes by the parallelism as well. I think you'll get into that. So let's start with, you know, with the sound of biblical poetry. This, if this is poetry, what does it sound like? Well, this is something we can't actually know, Ben. And the reason we can't know it is because there aren't any recordings. I'm kidding. You know, it's interesting because if you if you don't know how we know these things without recordings, one of the answers I've studied in, you know, tra- Latin and translated Latin poetry in my advanced Latin class. And you can just tell from, it just has to be a certain way, right? Once you get into the structure of the poem and you see how it's working, then the answer becomes, this has to be pronounced in this way because otherwise you wouldn't get a rhyme or what have you. The cadence. Yeah, the yeah. cadence wouldn't be right. Exactly. So you can just, you can know these things, but we can't know this with Hebrew. And that's because by the time we get the Masoretic text, which is the oldest, pretty much the oldest um, Hebrew Bible that we have, right? Which, by the way, is newer than the Septuagint, which was a, a Greek translation, right? But that Masoretic text comes a thousand years. By the time that we get that text and they put in the, the vowel marks and things like this, that's a thousand years after this stuff is written. And it's even hundreds of years after Hebrew stops being spoken, by the people who are doing this work, right? Yeah. So we, we have no way of knowing that. But somehow this poetry still speaks to us all this time later. You know, even even if it's translated in prose, it's amazing. You know, a good prose translation still brings through some of the poetry, the poetic value of the language, put it that way. Maybe not the formality. That's all lost because you went from the verse to the to the prose. But otherwise, you can get some of the sense of it. So how, how do we know it's poetry? Again, Barbara Harmson Smith, I was going to quote her from Alter. She says, as soon as we perceive, she writes, that a verbal sequence has a sustained rhythm that is formally structured according to a continuously operating principle of organization, we know that we're in the presence of poetry and we respond to it accordingly. Expecting certain effects from it and not others, granting certain conventions to it and not others. Now, you may or may not notice this in your translation because it would, somebody would have had to have seen it in the original. And again, it's not uncontroversial that there is biblical poetry. So 
maybe your translator didn't see it. Maybe he was in Kugel's camp. You know, Christopher, there is a part in the commentary of the Oxford that I have that I want to read from just one sentence that talks about maybe the distinction that you could make with poetry that kind of goes along with this discussion. So it says, rather than relying for meaning on plot, character, and setting as in narrative prose, biblical verse relies heavily on verbal resources. The sound and meaning of words, rhyme, repetition, images, fixed word pairs, and the like. Exactly. And you see that even in even in translations that aren't necessarily verse translations. You'll still, that comes through. What comes through is, is the rhythm, right? Hebrew poetry mm-hmm. has no meter and it has no rhyme. So how it works is it has what we call semantic parallelism, which means from one verse it to the next, you're going to get parallels in terms of meaning. So terms that are parallel in meaning. And what it tends to do is the movement tends to go from either it heightens or intensifies. So there there can be more focus or specification or concretization or even dramatization, as Alter puts it. So you can you're going to go from a more general to a more specific or a more a less intense to a more intense. And so this is sort of a rule of thumb. Now, the thing about poetry, though, is all good poets are going to operate within the framework of what makes poetry poetry while trying to somehow, how should I put it, cheat, cheat their way through it in some sense, right? They're going to try to break the mm-hmm. rules and they're going to break the rules. So this is one of the things that makes this so controversial is that scholars have actually bent over backwards to try to see this parallel structure, this parallel semantic structure when it's not there because the poet is doing something different at the time. Or they've said, well, because it's not there, well, then there is no poetry, right? It's, you're not, it's not something that's consistent, so there is no poetry. And so in both ways, you're, they're going wrong. And this is where you know Alter's work has been so important. By the way, his book, this is again, The, the Art of Biblical Poetry. It's named after his earlier book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. I remember reading about a scholar when he was studying the Bible, and it was at one of the Ivy League universities. I don't remember the details, but he was told by his professor, go get Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, but don't let anybody see you with it. And he goes and gets it. He really has to sneak it, right? Now it is the text Mm-hmm. It is authoritative. It is the authoritative <laughs> text on biblical narrative, and so I think you know, for uh, when it comes to Alter and his work, this certainly follow you know, in, in in that other in that earlier book, because if if nobody if if nobody else is seeing the poetry the way he sees it, then they really can't write about it in any sense. So what you see here is these versets that that have the semantical meaning, the meaning, right? The meaning of the word is going to be similar maybe synonymous would be a way to put it from one to the next but it's going to be go from more general to more specific unless it doesn't right sometimes it doesn't sometimes you get a a narrative that takes over well it's not art if it always follows the rules right so art has to follow the rules at the right times and and then there's no rule for when you're supposed to follow the rules so (laughs) that's right so it's a rule of thumb but you know the rules were meant to be broken. Another thing that happens if is if the first term is spatial or geographical, Alter says, then the second term is usual, a, usually a smaller spatial entity contained within the first. Does that make sense? 
So again, it's mm. from more general to more specific. I think my question on this, Christopher, and, and does Alter give us any sense as to whether this is something that is deliberately and consciously done by the authors, or if or if this method and genre is just so ingrained in their literary conscious that that's the way they construct their poetry? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is how it's done, right? This is how it's done. This is this is the form, the formality, right? The formality of the poetry. This is how it works. Yeah. I think there's certainly you can get a sense that if you read a lot of poetry and then you try to write something, you kind of get into that rhythm that you you aren't consciously aware of, you know, you're writing an iambic pentameter or whatever. You just you're following that cadence. And whenever it's appropriate within your style to, to break that cadence, you don't necessarily realize you're breaking a rule. You're doing it. You're just creating something. So you're preaching to the choir immersed in reading <laughs> all 150 Psalms today in the Robert Alter translation. A friend reached out to me in the middle of that reading and he needed someone to talk to and he was feeling it was lacking confidence. And I sung his praises. <laughs> I mean, I, could, I was reading the Psalms, you know. So it was, yeah. It's just it's that's how it came out, you know. There was this sort of this poetic value to what I what came out when I talked to him. To it starts ordering the rhythm of your of your brain waves. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was quite an experience, and we'll get into that. You know, in the end, we want to go into some practical applications after we go through what are the Psalms and talk about some Psalms, and then we can talk about how we how they're used, right? And how we can use them. So there are a couple ways that, since I'm still talking about biblical poetry in general, not necessarily Psalms specifically, there are different ways that poetry works in the Bible. On the one hand, Alter writes, one frequently encounters, especially in the prophets and Job, a structure of intensification, a sort of crescendo development. On the other hand, a good many poems are worked out through a consequentiality of images and ideas that is incipiently narrative and may include brief sequences of explicit narrative development. And so what you see sometimes in the poetry is that Alter makes a comparison to how movies work. You'll get a snapshot and then another one and then another one and you see the, the narrative develop in that way, but in this poetic way. So you get this illusion of movement like, like the one you see in the cinema. When you, you know, when you watch a movie. Now, of course, just because we see intensification or narrative focusing, that doesn't mean we're looking at poetry necessarily. But these are the these are features of the poetry. Alter says that particularly in Psalms, one encounters many poems that show elaborate formal patterning that is not at all linear and that serves other expressive purposes than those of intensification and specification. So again, you can see the structure, but it's not that it's always there but it's still poetry. One of the things that came up for me, Christopher, as I was going through this was realizing how dependent we are on translation to understand or get something out of these poems. And I think that's why going to alter is really, really valuable in this sense. But I found myself in order to really understand the context of something or or maybe it sounded some something sounded somewhat familiar, but maybe I was like, the words aren't quite there for me. And so maybe I'm reading in the NRSV, and so then I go and I look in the KJV, 
and I realize, oh, okay, this is this is the wording that I'm used to here. And so I think the Psalms, maybe more so than any of the things that we've covered so far, really lend themselves to comparing translations. Because again, when you're looking at poetry, there's different methods that you can use in approaching the translation. And if you look at translators that have used different methods, then you start sort of zeroing in on more of the intent of the writer, of the author maybe, but then you also start pulling out more of the personal meaning that is going to be significant to you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I, I wanted to touch on translation theory just a little bit. You know, so what I think what you're saying before I go into translation theory is, and this has been my experience, I've done this, you know, if as you read different translations, when you're not able to read the original language, you can sort of triangulate in some sense mm-hmm. back to the to what's essential, right? Which isn't the same thing as having access to the original that you can't read, but it gets you closer than just reading one translation. Certainly, the, if your one translation is the King James, right? Translation. Yeah. 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 So to touch on translation theory, and this is important when it comes to poetry, especially because you can either be dynamic or functionally equivalent. This is how we talk about it in translation theory. Functional equivalency means I'm going to go word for word. And so dynamic equivalency means I'm going to give sense for sense. It's more of the feel that it's, mm-hmm. we can compare to the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, right? So a, mm-hmm. a functionally dynamic translation is going to be more like the letter and then the dynamic equivalent is going to be like the spirit so that's how it works and so what i love about alter is that i mean he's just so such an incredible scholar he he does both he wants to give us he wants to get us closer (laughs) to the to the hebrew and he realizes that he can't do that by just going word for word that won't do it right so he has to actually give us something that's poetry and that, and that follows the, the rules that he sees in the Hebrew poetry and yet is in English and, and yet sticks close to the Hebrew, right? In English that sticks close to the Hebrew. So it really is a Herculean feat that he, that he has performed. It's, it's really commendable. At one point, he says that you know, he gets lucky sometimes because English has terms that, that fit the alliterative pattern and and also the the actual you know translated meaning of the thing and so they fit in well and some of that's due to the fact that English really does have a very extensive vocabulary compared to some other languages and so translating into English can be you know very effective but you have to have a very strong command of the language and a very large vocabulary to draw from that's right There's one more thing I want to say about translation and poetry, especially specifically Hebrew poetry, before we go into the Psalms, the the poetry of the Psalms in particular. So this is a more general comment. It applies to the Psalms. Certainly, actually, I'll give an example from the the Psalms. We have a a, a, well-known Psalm that is the the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the characteristics that I've read about in the past, reading Mitchell, who's a translator, and others, is that Hebrew is very, very compact. So translating it means, well, before Alter, it meant necessarily expanding it. It still expands with Alter right. because that's just what happens between this you know, biblical Hebrew and, and modern English. But he really 
does a good job at keeping it as compact as possible. But the original is so very compact. It may just be two words per line, just a few syllables uh, in those two words. So for example, not quoting from Hebrew, but the sister language Arabic, the same line, the Lord is my shepherd, Arab Rabbi. That's it. That's literally the Lord is my Lord. Arab Rabbi. And so imagine that every line goes like that, right? Just over and over, line after line of this compact, just muscular. It's almost like it's like a, a big cat poised to pounce. You know what I mean? Hmm. And, and and it's when the and it's when you read it, and I think it's in your mind that it expands in that way. Or if it's someone's translating it, then it probably expanded a little bit on the page, and then once again in your mind. And that's just how this it's part. concentrated. It's distilled. It really is. Yeah. yeah. So going into Psalms in particular, the poetry of Psalms in particular, again, most people already think of the Psalms as obviously rhythmic and, you know, there's symmetrical and there's repetition and there's artfulness and there's all these things, right? At the same time, though, some, some people have assumed that this is sort of this poetry from the heart, as Alter puts it, where no one's really trying to be formal and yet... It's much more formal than that. Well, some of it may be a little bit that way, but we're not talking about, you know, this is a, and I think one of the commentators here that I was reading said, this is an anthology of anthologies. Like you've got different collections of poetry here, different collections of Psalms, and some of them are, e- are even very similar to each other. They may be different versions of the same poem that came in from different times and then were collected in together. So, yeah. So earlier I quoted someone alter quoted on what poetry is, you know, yeah, what it is right here. I want to read a quote from alter who's giving us what it is and what it does. So poetry, he writes, working through a system of complex linkages of sound, image, word, rhythm, syntax, theme, idea, is an instrument for conveying densely patterned meanings and sometimes contradictory meanings that are not readily conveyable through other kinds of discourse. Hmm. So when nothing else will do to get this kind of message across, poetry is the vehicle. Sometimes brevity is even more expressive. Absolutely. So I want to I want to look at some things. I know you're going to give us lots of examples, Ben. We're going to go into it, and I think we're going to work together and compare some translations a little bit. But I want to give a look at a couple of these psalms, you know, to look at what's thematic for the whole of the book of Psalms. And when I say the book of Psalms, by the way, I meant to mention earlier, there were probably multiple books of Psalms. And one of the evidences for that, by the way, I noticed when I was reading through all of them, you know, in one day, is that the same psalm shows up again, right? You, yep. You, you already, I already had this psalm. What's going on? Did, did something go wrong here? Did I, you know, the the pages turned or something? And it turns out that it could be that there were different collections and they come together, and that's how we end up with these repeated psalms. But there are other evidences of this. There are also, I was going to mention too that it's they're attributed sometimes to David, at least some of them, and. Mm-hmm. 
I love what Alter did. He calls them Psalms of David. It's a non-committal way of yeah. saying it's like a Davidic psalm. Right. They're either by David or for David or something to do with David. We'll call them of David, right? Since we're not sure. Yeah. The actually it's interesting to note that the Muslims consider the from the Hebrew writings, you know, the Torah, the Psalms, and as they say, are written by David. And well, they say the gospel. I don't know what gospel that is, right? But those are those are scripture, right? And so the Psalms are included in that canon. And they're said to be written by David in the Islamic tradition. There's something about Psalm 8 that I want to go into, Ben. And that's because in Psalm 8, you don't necessarily have a narrative. We d- I did mention how you could get narrative from, you know, from a series of images that the poetry presents you, right? But here in Psalm 8, the thing that I want to point out is that the narrative is sort of a background to, to what you're seeing in the poem. That's It's an assumed background. That's, you're starting, you know, that's already happened, and now here's this poem. And so what the poem does, and this is something that, that the reason I'm mentioning is because I don't think prose can do this. Instead of, because even though you could have this series of images that gives you a narrative effect, right? It's not so much discursive like prose narrative, Poetry is not so much discursive like prose narrative, right? So what it does in Psalm 8, instead of having the creation told, and this is actually mirroring the creation story from Genesis, what what you get instead is, here's the poet looking around and telling you what he sees, describing creation as he sees it in the moment. Do you see what I mean? Hmm. Marveling at it. And at his place in it, right? When we get a John, we're saying, okay, this is a psalm of praise. This other psalm is something different. And yet these things don't have those kind of hard, fast boundaries. They sometimes bleed into each other. But again, it's still helpful maybe to look at, okay, what? how could we classify these psalms in some sense? When I say it's helpful, maybe I should have said we can't help ourselves. We're human beings. It's what we do. <laughs> That's just how we do it. Everything needs to be classified. Yeah. <laughs> set into groups. I think it's interesting, Ben, to go into what a psalm is in the sense of what does it mean to say psalm? Because the the Hebrew is mizmor, and that's an act of singing or chanting. And yet the the title isn't, you know, mizmore tehillim, songs of praise. The title that that book actually gets is something else. It's just praises. That's the name of the of the book, which is, is different. A final comment about the, the poetry of of psalms before we go into some examples and the psalms that we want to talk about is that one way to think about why poetry would be if it's god speaking or if you're speaking of an experience of god what better language than poetry Hmm. that's the language with which to approach god that's the language with with which if god spoke to us that we might hear you know again in the prophets we also see poetry in the bible prose and poetry and again sometimes it's hard to tell where one begins and the other ends but oftentimes you'll see thus saith the lord and what follows is poetry so christopher one of the themes that came out in some of the commentary and thought that i was going into on the psalms was the concept of what i've kind of termed the ancient unconscious. And you could say the ancient Hebrew unconscious, but I think it's it's broader than that. And it's this idea that these 
ancient writers or poets or whatever, they have some conception of a deeper psychological meaning within human experience, and they're trying to get at it, right? And we may be in modern psychology have some more exact or precise terms to get at some of these things, but they didn't have that. And so a lot of the ways that they accessed this was through these types of poetic ascensions, so to speak. And this comes out in an interesting way within Psalm 42. There's this phrase that there is just volumes of commentary on And the phrase talks about the deep calling unto the deep. The deep calls unto the deep. And like I said, I I listened to various commentary on this, but it didn't really go into it. (laughs) More it was, yeah, there's this phrase and there's a lot of discussion about this. For me, this evoked ideas of creation. Within the Psalms, there's a lot of reference to creation, like you just talked about, Christopher. There's a lot of references to water. If we go back to Genesis, we see water and land being involved in the creation and the waters being divided and the land coming out. That's sort of the the Genesis concept of creation. If we look at ancient Mesopotamian myths that were adjacent to the Hebrew culture, both Babylonian and Canaanite, we get an idea of a God that creates the world out of the chaos of the waters. And so, for instance, in the Babylonian myth, you have Marduk, and he comes down and defeats Tiamat, who's the the dragon or the beast of, of chaos, and makes the world out of that. Well, conceptually, that's also the chaos of the water and the the land being brought up out of the water. So if we go back into the Genesis myth of this, you have God creating the land out of the water or bringing the land out of the water. And then you have the flood, which is actually the prevailing of the depths of the water back over the earth again. How this relates to the concept of the ancient unconscious is that we would sort of posit our conscious mind as the land, right? Symbolically. And the unconscious mind as that of the waters or of the deep. And the idea here is that in something as simple as our daily cycle of sleep and alertness, our state of alertness is like that land, right? And our state of sleep is that unconscious state or that deep state where there are things, there is sort of the raw material, the chaos out of which God can create. And so every morning when we wake up, we are that consciousness that is being awakened out of the unconscious and that's new life coming out. For instance, the waters parting and giving birth to the conscious mind. But in the Psalms and also in Job, when it talks about the deep or the ocean, there's always the monster, right? There's the Leviathan or the dragon or the sea monster that is lurking there in the deep. And 
this is something that is dangerous to man. If you go too far into that, you can be devoured by that. But it's not something that is dangerous to God, right? It talks about this monster basically being almost like a pet to God. And so the idea here is that God calls to us or calls to our unconscious, our deep, and he can tame that and he can bring out of that. He can create our consciousness or our understanding out of that that depth. That's deep, Ben. <laughs> Unfully intended. No, seriously. You know, it's interesting because you remind me of something from the Islamic tradition that I've always found fascinating. Look, we don't know anything about sleep. We don't know anything about consciousness. Yeah. In the Islamic tradition, it is said that when we sleep, our soul goes back to God, where it comes from. It tires of the world and has to go back to God to find its rest in God. Yeah. I mean, conceptually and symbolically, that fits with this concept. So as I think this is a, a symbolically important thing to keep in mind as a person is going through Psalms. For me, it was like when I got to that phrase in Psalm 42, the deep calling unto deep, it was like the deep of another person calling to the deep in me or my deep calling into the deep of the others. What, what is it that's asleep or hidden in these words or these poems? It's not just about the words we already said, right? There's, there's more to this than the words. In fact, the meaning is hidden somehow. And, and the different ways that we go about accessing it help us pull out of that chaos what is meaningful to us. But there's something that's asleep or hidden in the words that calls to something that's asleep or hidden in us. And it's that deep calling to the deep. And that's where creation is. When we talked about the book of Ruth, one of the things that was mentioned about the moment when Ruth goes into Boaz is that she goes into him at midnight and that there's this moment of creation at midnight. And here in the Psalms, there's also a mention of David and, and Midrash gets into this, actually, the, the Jewish, the rabbinical commentary of the Midrash talks about how David would compose his Psalms at midnight. He would go to sleep and then he'd wake up in the middle of the night, either not able to sleep or, or just, you know, feeling thoughtful. And he'd compose or sing his Psalms. And these were moments of creation. And how that sort of came about was that the wind would blow and it would blow through the strings of his harp and that would awake him or give him ideas and to me this was that that wind that breath the ruach of creation so david here and in, in the middle of the night is creating these psalms with the inspiration right and even if you look at the root of the word there in english right that's that spirit or breath or wind that is being breathed into these and and creating consciousness, creating life. What is a baby when it first comes out of the womb? What's the first thing it's supposed to do? It takes a breath, right? And then cries. And so that's that, that's that breath of life. That's that moment of creation that's happening. You remind me when you when you talk of this midnight hour of Shakespeare, who called it the witching hour. Yeah, that's actually, there's there's stuff to go into there with it as well. Absolutely. In one of the things I wanted to quickly mention, most people are probably going to be reading their Latter-day Saint King James Version of the Bible. 
And in Psalms, there's all the chapter headings. And Christopher and I are, are well documented in railing against chapter headings. That's right. Okay. And we haven't changed our ideas about that. However, I'm going to mention that I did go through the chapter headings in this because I was looking for some specific things. I was looking for how is it that the Latter-day Saint tradition, and, and it's not even necessarily tradition, but but sort of the the default or the or typical way of interpreting the Psalms goes about. And this sometimes gets some particular Latter-day Saint flavor, but it's mostly just coming from mainstream or Protestant Christianity, these interpretations of the Psalms. So as I'm looking through these chapter headings, I'm seeing all of these things that are making interpretations about what the Psalms actually say. So many of the chapter headings talked about the Psalms being messianic in nature. You know, oh, David is is prophesying about this, or if it's not David, it's, it's, it's that. And they're messianic, meaning, oh, these are talking about Jesus, right? Or at least about now, the Messiah. Correct. Yeah. Which within the Christian conception is, you know, that would be Jesus. Now, there's there's no doubt that within the Jewish tradition, there's plenty of things talking about messiahs sort of in the plural or a, a particular messiah within the tradition as well. In the Psalms. In the Psalms. Okay. Yeah, but in other books of scripture as well. So I don't, there's nothing wrong with the Christological approach that we'd be taking here or even seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. But I would just caution against assuming that that is what the conscious intent of the authors of the Psalms was. Once we understand better how they viewed it, then we can better understand how to see Christ or the Christ in it. But I think from a particularly a Latter-day Saint perspective, sometimes we read this and we're like, oh, you know, this Psalm is talking about Jesus. And it's like, no, the Psalm's not talking about Jesus, the Psalm's talking about something in particular. And because Jesus is the archetypal Christ, he's definitely going to relate to that. But you you have to start first with the intended meaning, and then you'll be able to get a greater meaning out of approaching the archetype in a Christological way. Yeah, you know, I like how you said you distinguished, it seemed like you were making a, distinct, a distinction between Christ and the Christ, or at least you were, maybe you were focusing, you were, you were being a a biblical poet, right? You went from Christ, the Christ. <laughs> but to me, it's funny because that actually, you reverse that out because you're a clever poet. And you it seems like you went for, I think when you say Christ, I think we as Christians, we think Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, right? But as Richard Rohr pointed out, Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? And, mm. and the Christ is something bigger than Jesus, Jesus Jesus showed us what it meant to be Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so as Richard Rohr put it, again, thinking back to Richard Rohr on this, before, you know, Adam, let's say, are, are we to think that God had nothing to say to his creatures, you know, to the, to the universe, to anything, to anyone? I think as Latter-day Saints, you know, we talk about the, the spirit of Christ. Maybe this is a way to think about it, right? This idea... Yeah of the spirit of Christ is something that Jesus, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who we call Jesus, the Christ embodies, right? As, as you've pointed out, right. But that is not something that is limited to that embodiment. I thought it was uh, almost, it was almost funny. I think he meant to be funny. I, when Richard Rohr says, when Jesus showed up, you know, when, when we get the incarnation of God and Jesus, 
that just became a distraction in some sense, right? I mean, that's not what he said. I don't mean a distraction. I mean, that becomes <laughs> the focus. That's what I should say. It becomes the focus, right? You end up focusing on that and not what it represents, you know, what it means. The meaning is the spirit of Christ, right? That's larger than Jesus of Nazareth. That's more than just that, that not only he embodies, but that goes beyond him and that we're called to participate in, right? What does Alan Watts say? What's the Alan Watts quote? You know, that the religion of Jesus became a religion about Jesus and lost its power. Yeah, that's a, that's a good quote. There's something to ponder, you know, is there a way in which, because you can make Jesus an idol, right? Anything can be an idol. You can make Jesus into an idol. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life doesn't mean put up a picture of me on the wall and pray to me or don't pray to me because you don't do that. But that I am, you know, that you look to me as in like the person, like uh, being Jesus, like be like being John Malkovich, right? Being Jesus, right? Rather, it's being Jesus or being Christ-like yourself, right? Embodying in yourself that Christ archetype. Okay, Christopher, are you ready to talk about some of the Psalms in particular? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder, Ben, if we can blend in a little bit of what we said we would, I said we would talk about last, right? Which is how to do Psalms, you know, how to apply this, how to use Psalms. I mean, okay, they're in the hymnal. They're okay. That's fine. But there's more to this. And as a matter of fact, they're used in, in liturgy. They were well. They're originally most likely used in liturgy. They're probably part of the temple liturgy. Yes. And yeah, so we don't have that, right? And we also don't have the weekly use of psalms in, in liturgy, which the Catholic Church has. And I don't know how many. I, I can't say. You know how many among our listeners might actually use the psalms in a way, in a personal devotional way, right? To either read them out loud or to memorize them and recite them, or to listen to them. And so th the reason I bring this up is because as we go into Psalm 1, in, my, in one of my favorite translators, as mentioned before on the podcast, in Stephen Mitchell, he does say in his introduction to this book, which is a book of Psalms, selected and adapted from the Hebrew by Stephen Mitchell, he says that at times, he takes interpretive liberties, right? And so what he's doing in a sense is he's doing Psalms. He's, he's sort of recreating the Psalm for our own day and time and context and, and place, right? By the way, when it comes to this context business, one, one thing scholars like to, to do that Alter frowns upon is this idea that you can, if you could just figure out the, what's called in scholarship, they often say it in German, Sitzenleben, right? The, the setting of, this writing, then you would now all of a sudden you would know everything. Look at the text, you know, that we can work with the text. How are we going to have access to that? There's, you know, I mean, there, there have been developments made in, in terms of knowing the setting of these writings through archaeology and, you know, linguistics and anthropology, but we'll never really know exactly that setting. We'll never know it exactly any more than we'll ever know the, the pronunciation, you know, or the, even the, the, vowel, the, the vowels in these words that make up these times. And by the way, it's worth mentioning that there are times when it's not clear what the Hebrew says, either because meaning we don't know what it means or you can't even tell what it says. Yeah. 
And so a lot, a lot uh, there that happens in the Psalms. And so a lot of your, all of your translations are making some kind of interpretive leaps in, in that sense, right? So will you read that? Will you read the King James translation of Psalm one? Psalm one, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The first thing that I notice when I compare with the translation in Stephen Mitchell is that Stephen Mitchell's is a lot shorter, but you'll you'll notice some more differences as I read it. Blessed are the man and the woman who have grown beyond their greed and have put an end to their hatred and no longer nourish illusions. But they delight in the way things are and keep their hearts open day and night. They are like trees planted near flowing rivers, which bear fruit when they are ready. Their leaves will not fall or wither. Everything they do will succeed. That's really different, right? Yeah, there are quite a few changes there. <laughs> I shared it with my wife and you know, I mentioned that this is probably one that Mitchell would admit where he took some, some liberties as a poet in adapting it and, and altering it, right? But I like what he did with it. I like the way it works. Yeah, it's a translation, maybe a cultural translation in some sense. Right. So we've talked about this when it comes to Joseph Smith and translation, right? That translation isn't just to take things from one language to another, but that there's cultural adaptation, that you move things from one, not, not only even from one language to another or from one culture to another, but even from one medium to another. Psalms are sung. I've heard psalms. I heard something from Schubert. I've heard pop music, you know, something, uh, versions that are more poppy and versions that are, there's Gregorian chants of psalms. These are mm -hmm. all translations, right? And Stephen Mitchell, right. in one of the psalms in this selection, I don't, I won't quote it, I'll just cite it. He mentions terrorists, you know, mm. you're, that you, in the sense that you would be afraid of them or something. It's, to not be or whatever. Well, in one sense, we're each called to sort of translate these for ourselves, which is kind of interesting to me, I think, in the in terms of like a seer stone and how we're kind of all supposed to have our own seer stone. The idea there being that we're all supposed to approach scripture in a way that translates it to our own context. Uh, you talked to Christopher before about how the scriptures are the penultimate word of God. That is, the real word of God is what is is translated into our hearts, not necessarily the words on the page. Yeah. So now that we've covered a good intro into Psalms, we're going to go into most of the commentary on the specific Psalms, and we're going to save that for next week in an episode. And for today, I think we've talked about most of the things that will give us a good base for moving forward into that commentary on the Psalms. Yeah, I look forward to going into some of the Psalms in particular and comparing translations. It'll be fun. That and, and our conversation about how to how to use the Psalms in, in your own devotion. Yeah. 
So we'll get to that stuff next week, and we'll sign off for this time. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ed Peterson. Have a good week. 